Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bill by Us. It's Alyssa and Taylor here. And today we are continuing our series of highlighting Latinx and Hispanic movement makers from all across North Carolina. If you've been listening, you know that we've been doing this series for a few months now, actually. And we're super excited to be able to continue this series this week with another amazing guest. Yes, I am excited to say that today we are joined by Ileana Santillan, the Executive Director of El Pueblo. Ileana has been a longtime organizer and advocate in Latinx communities with 16 years of experience in education and advocacy arena and coming up at five years uh, at El Pueblo. So Ileana, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you all so much for having me. I'm super excited about being in the space with y'all and it's really an honor to to be here today. So thank y'all. Amazing. So before we really get into it, um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So, um, you know, I'm I'm from Mexico. I was born in the motherland. Um, I was born in Mexico City, moved to um, Washington State when I was around 12. So I have some roots um, in the West Coast and my family's still there. They often question my choice of living in North Carolina. Uh, They're like, why are you in the South? Come back over here. But I really do love the South. Um, I moved here um, about 17 years ago. Um, I lived in Sanford, North Carolina, so very rural. Now I'm in, um, you know, Raleigh. So I have had experiences um, in the rural South. And then like now with, uh, you know, me being in in Raleigh, North Carolina. But um, yeah, my background is mostly in education. I uh, went to Meredith College years ago. And, um, you know, I, I myself was an ESL student when I first moved into this country and I saw what it was like to uh, be left out, right? You know, a lot of people were in the class learning things. Meanwhile, I was in the background uh, doing puzzles or doing something else. So I, that experience kind of shaped me and led me to want to be an ESL teacher. So I taught English as a second language for about 10 years um, in Stanford, moved to Apex for a couple years and taught at uh, Salem Elementary for a little bit. But what um, I guess transitioned me out of the classroom was the issues that my students were facing. So, you know, at the time, everybody was worked up with the EOGs, the EOCs and all the testing. But I often felt like we don't even talk to kids anymore. Like it's all about their reading scores and their math scores. So like, you know, to me, I made it, I took it upon myself to have conversations with my students every Monday. And, you know, there I was sitting, you know, thinking like, oh, they're gonna tell me about how they went to the park. Like, oh, they're gonna share all these cute stories. And everything I heard was just devastating. Um, a lot of like, you know, even kindergarten students being like, yeah, Miss Santiago, like my weekend was terrible because my cousin got deported. Or, you know, my mom, you know, my baby brother has asthma because there's mold in the ceiling. Um, you know, like all these stories and just hearing them, you know, every Monday. And, you know, even like after summertime, I would be like, I bet you went to the pool, like you did something. And they're like, my mom's really afraid of driving because we don't have a, she doesn't have a driver's license. So we stayed at home. We didn't go anywhere. And that was just like mind blowing to me to know that, you know, these young people, like these children were going through these situations. And even though I love teaching and I would love to be a teacher again, because it was by far the best job ever, I felt the need to leave the classroom and figure out how I could become an organizer or just do something so that someday, they could grow up in homes without mold. They could feel safe in their communities. Their parents could take them to the park if they wanted to. So it was really hard for me to leave the classroom. My students were like, Miss Santiago, we'll behave, like we'll, we'll read more. And I was just like, no, y'all, it's really not about you. Like it's, it, you know, just trust me. And, you know, let's see if they have, I still have relationships with some of my students and their parents, but um, 
And that kind of led me to go to NC State. I got my master's in family and family life and youth development. And then I transitioned to working at El Pueblo where I learned so much. And um, I, I was there for four years, left for two. I worked at NC State. Um, then I worked at Poder for, um, for the 2020 elections. And now I'm back at El Pueblo as an executive director. So it just feels like full circle. And I'm just super excited about uh, the work that we're doing and just really honoring the promises that I made to my students um, back in the day when I was a teacher a few years back. Oh, I love that so much. That was such a powerful story. And Eliana, you mentioned we've been talking about El Pueblo. Would you mind, you know, telling our listeners a little bit more about, you know, what El Pueblo is, what they do and kind of what your role there entails? Yeah, so Pueblo is an organization um, that has been around for 26 years. So we have been around for a very long time and we have, you know, transitioned with like the way that we've done programs. Um, You know, I I became the executive director in March of this year. So, you know, because I worked there, I was familiar with the work and El Pueblo, um, you know, for a while there in its long trajectory, they were very focused on um, services. So they did a lot of health education. They did a lot of... um, you know, yeah, like just programming based on needs of the people. Um, Back when I first started, Angelina Cheveria was the executive director, and she really led the organization uh, to a different vision, right? So we started doing a lot of advocacy and civic engagement, which to me was um, just an incredible experience. So we were still, you know, talking to community members about health issues and, you know, how to take care of each other. But we were like, you know, let's take for a moment and, and, and think through, yeah, health is important, but shouldn't we all have access to healthcare. Why is mental health not talked about and so expensive, right? So I feel like we're at a crossroads in the organization where we continue to do this leadership, um, you know, service-based projects, but we're adding a layer of civic engagement and advocacy, which I'm super duper proud of. So we have our adult leadership group who does a lot of, you know, right now they're doing a lot of uh, vaccine equity work, right? But they're talking about redistricting. They're talking about health access. So it's like, yes, these are problems and here's a resource, but what are we as a community gonna do together to make things different for us? We also have a a youth leadership program, which is incredible. So we're working with high school and college students who are new to the movement. And, um, you know, we're, you know, essentially working with them to um, get them, you know, their their leadership skills leveled up and everything. But we're also um, talking to them about the importance of voting and why it's important to lift our voices. Um, Something that I'm really, really excited about in the upcoming year for El Pueblo is that um, in the past, uh, I think for years and years, when we talk about voting, everyone thinks of campaigning with phone banking and text banking. And my daughter hates that I share this story, but last year, you know, she's 17. And last year when I was working, you know, like 12 hour days, phone banking, text banking, she'd come downstairs and she'd be like, oh my God, you think you're getting people to vote. You have like 20 phone bankers. They're all on Zoom. You think this is cute, but like nobody's going to vote because you call them. There's my people, my generation, they're not answering the phone and you text them. They don't know who you are. Like, why would they listen to you? And that totally shifted the way that I think about youth engagement and the way that I think about electoral work. It's we're just we're trying to figure out a way that we can experiment with new initiatives and where we just don't reach out to people. Um when we want their vote, that's, you know, she flagged for me that texting and phone banking doesn't work. But then the other thing that was flagged by a lot of youth leaders was like, yeah, you called me last year because I turned 18 and you wanted me to vote and you were telling me who to vote for. But where were you when my mom got laid off because of COVID? 
where were you when I went to the pantry to get food for my siblings, but there was no food at the pantry? Did you care? When, why didn't you call them? It would have been great to talk to you, even if you didn't offer me anything, you didn't check up on me, you didn't care. Now that there's an election, you're acting like it's, you know, you know, live or die. If like, I don't go, I don't go. And I think that that really has shaped the way that I think about the work, the way that I think about building community with young people, with um, our older CLC ladies. Um, and it really just, it, it's, it's exciting, right? It's kind of like when people are like, oh, what's your strategic plan? What are you gonna do? We have a plan to experiment. We have a plan to not do what we've been doing for so many years. We're gonna try new things. We're gonna figure out a, a different type of way of getting people to go out and vote and be civically engaged and be you know, involved in advocacy, but we're gonna honor their humanity and where they're at in their lives because it even feels so out of touch for me to you know talk to my clc ladies right like a couple of them lost loved ones in mexico due to covid and they can't go there because they don't have documentation but here i am asking them to go talk about redistricting like it just feels so odd and out of touch so i'm trying to build something that really listens to the community and we're not you know just calling them when we need something um and that's kind of where, you know, we're taking the vision of El Pueblo um, in the next coming years. Yeah, this is, I'm glad you're bringing up this topic of conversation because definitely we at Democracy NC have been in the same boat of just like struggling to figure out this balance of building real support systems for our communities. And like you said, like being there when they need us um, but then also we, we have a specific mission, right? Like at Dem NC, like we are a good government organization. So we are here to try to, um, make sure everybody knows what's going on and that you're participating in the way that feels right for you. Um, and we don't like do direct services. So it's like, how, how do we mix those things so that we can know about all the direct services, connect people and still make sure that people are involved when they can be. And it's, um, it's really hard, especially when the past few years, things have gotten more difficult for just everyday people specifically because of COVID. Um, and yeah, it's, it's difficult. And this, um, <laughs> hearing that your daughter is the one to tell you that mom, it's not working. And it's funny because like, we probably didn't need your daughter to say that. It's like, we knew it, but we were still trying. Um, but sometimes we need someone to just tell it like it is. <laughs> so I appreciate that. And yeah, I am excited to see what kind of experiments y'all do with new tactics. It'll be really cool to learn from y'all. Um, and hopefully we can try some new stuff too and share it out as well, because um, we we want to be the organizations that are always there that truly support everybody and um, can work together to make all this better. So appreciate you and your leading the charge of the experimentation because um, we got to get it done. So I really appreciate that. Um, I was also thinking about how I'm glad that you still have uh, relationships with your students because I bet that they're so proud of you to know that when you left the classroom and you had to say like, no, I'm doing this for, to work on something bigger so that it's not just me in the classroom working with you. There's, there's 
like policies and a social safety net for you. Um, and so I hope that they understand what you do now and, um, and are proud of you and grateful for your work. Yeah, yeah, it's been really great to see them. Um, you know, I don't do a lot of Instagram, but my daughter does. And, you know, when we were, when I was a teacher, she was a student, right? So a lot of them are like, was that your mom on university? And she really out there doing these things? So like, I mean, just, you know, I think for them, um, it's also meaningful to see someone who looks like us doing this kind of work. I know that when I first started teaching, um, a lot of my students would be like, but you're not a real teacher. And I was like, yes, this is my classroom. Miss Antigan is written like at the door. And they're like, but you're Mexican. Like Mexican people can't be teachers. And I'm like, no, like you can be anything that you want to be, you know, and just gave them that spiel. And then now that, you know, I'm doing like this kind of work, like I can, you know, yeah, when I was a teacher, like I would always ask my kids like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody would ever say, I want to work at a nonprofit because it was so you know, distant, it was like, we don't advocate, other people advocate for our rights, but it's never us at the front line. So I think that having them see that and um, just being that like, we can be our own voices, we can advocate for each other, it can be us, right? We don't have to wait for someone else to come and do it. I think that has been um, really meaningful. And, you know, my daughter, like, yeah, she tells me all the time, things how they are and I'm just so grateful for her voice and you know for for all her you know friends who are like yeah you know phone banking is really not it and it worries me because you know I think to your point like we've known this right it's not rocket science like we didn't need a hundred polls of youth in you know specific segments of North Carolina like we have known this and I think that it's time that we figure out a different way and it might you know take us a couple of tries but I think that honoring what, what young people are saying. I think for us in the Latinx community, like young people, the population is growing exponentially and they're like, you know, moving up on, you know, like they're gonna be voters. Like in 2024, we're gonna have so many young Latinx people voting. And I think that if we don't figure out how to get them, how to get connected, I'm not, and stop tokenizing people for the vote, right? I think that, you know, I heard that so much last year, like they're like every org, called me like they're like if you call me one more time I am not gonna vote because I am sick and tired of this so I think that figuring out how to build real community with folks so that you know it's not it's not gonna take a phone call or a text for them to vote but they're gonna vote because they have had conversations with community members or they themselves are like yeah you know we need someone who's really gonna advocate for for healthcare for you know right now we're thinking through um some of the elections that we're gonna have next year um the 287g program right collaboration between ICE and law enforcement is a huge topic for us. And it took years and, you know, elected officials in several counties to make sure that, um, you know, this program was not active in places like Mecklenburg and Wake County. What's gonna happen next year? We don't know. We don't know if the, you know, what we, yeah, exactly. We don't know what's gonna happen with that program. And then we, we see things at the NTGA, you know, for the past two long sessions, they're proposing legislation that would make it so that this program is mandatory statewide. So I think that, um, you know, there are real issues that are impacting us, our community members, mixed status families, like, I mean, people with a conscience, right? So I think that it's really, really important that we find a way um, to get people involved, to get people, um, yeah, included, and to figure out how to make our voices be heard and um, get folks who really want to help ensure that we all live lives with dignity in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. The transactional piece is like something like, I don't know how many people like use that word necessarily, but it's something that I always think of as like voting 
is not and should not be transactional. And if we're giving off that vibe when we're trying to talk to folks about what voting is for, then like when this is not right, we are not doing it correctly. Uh, I'm sorry, Alyssa, go ahead. No, I was just gonna, I totally agree, but I was just gonna speak to, you know, the bigger message of how we we really are trying to inspire like this new generation of change. And it reminds me of something we talked about um, during our Black History Month portion of our podcast when we asked all of our guests, what does a real true democracy that centers Black and Brown people really look like? And a lot of us couldn't really, you know, come up with an answer of like what that looked like because we'd never seen it before. And I feel like that's kind of like where we're at right now. Like we kind of have this idea, we know what we want it to look like, but we've never seen it before. And so we're all just kind of working together to to build it the best we can. We know that community has to be at the center of it. And we know that people have to be um, the focus of the future. And so, you know, we're trying our best, but you know, it's hard to build something that you haven't ever seen built before. But moving to one of our next questions that I wanted to ask you, because you were kind of going into it already when you were talking, Ileana, um, talking about, you know, the importance of centering community and the things that we're doing. And I just wanted to ask you more about, you know, what is your personal theory of change and kind of like how are you trying to, you know, lead El Pueblo to approach that change? I think that, you know, what we're trying to do now is um, really listen, like really listen to what folks want to do. I think that oftentimes organizations, you know, directors, et cetera, don't practice active listening, right? Like we we act like we hear things out, but then we have our own agenda, we have our own goals, and we have our own plans. So I think that, you know, uh, my fear of change is community-based, and it's, um, you know, youth-led. And it's, um, I think it's hard because it's not about changing everything, like all the systems that are outside, like all of the, you know, coalitions, it's not about like, I think that, you know, at least for me, a lot of the changes that I'm trying to see is they're hard because we have to look at ourselves in the mirror, right? So when we started talking about like, you know, black and brown solidarity, I love, you know, we, we all put it on our, you know, slogans on our website, but is what does it really look like, you know, right? So I think that it, the hardship, or it's not a hardship, the opportunity that I see right now is um, very challenging because I think for us to really build that, we have to take a hard look in the mirror and deal with the anti-Blackness that is very well and alive within the Latinx community. And that doesn't mean I'm going to get all of the Black-led organizations or organizers. Why am I going to tax them to come and talk to our people and put them so, like, it just feels so out of touch again. And it just feels like yes, you know, we, we want to do this, but we want to be intentional about it. So what are we doing to build a safe space, a container where people can just show up as they are and we can move the lens and we move it with compassion, we move it with love and we move it in a space where, you know, people learn and are not afraid or skeptical of, you know, things, right? I think that what we are seeing, you know, what I remember like when Axiel Jenkins was murdered, um, a lot of the Spanish media newspapers were like, oh, it was this black person and he was selling drugs and da, da, da. And I'm like, why are we using that narrative, right? And all of that is ingrained in people's heads, right? So I think that, you know, there's a lot of growth, a lot of opportunities, a lot of things that we need to change within ourselves, within our community, so that at some point we can be ready to really build that solidarity that we often talk about. I think that it's an illusion to think that that's going to happen overnight or that it's going to happen when you just put 
groups of people together with interpretation. Yes, great. Uh, you know, access to a language resources is good, but if you don't take a heart, you know, like take a look at yourself in the mirror and have these spaces, it's just not going to work. And I think it's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of intentionality, but I think that we're at a place where we really need to think um, through how we come about um, and how we are in solidarity, right? I think that you know, for a lot of us, it's easy to put it on grants, it's easy to put it on our websites, but like, where were we when, I think it was HB 802 or 805, what were we doing, right? Like, was I spending my phone bank money on that? I was, I was like, you know what, if phone bank, like, if that's the thing that we're doing, and if that's what we're going to do, and let me put my money where my mouth is, and let me advocate and actually show up, and not just say, on a post, this bill is bad, but like, how am I leveraging my resources and how am I having, um, you know, these conversations? And even though y'all heard, I am not a fan of phone banks, that phone bank was probably like the best we had because we were challenged with having conversations with Latinx voters about why they should say to their legislators to oppose this bill, right? So a lot of my phone bankers were like, y'all, like, I'm used to having like three minute conversations with people just telling me they're going to vote or they're not going to vote or they need more info. But this time around, they asked me, well, isn't it bad to like destroy property, blah, 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 blah. So it was the first time where like the conversation actually felt intentional and we didn't get a lot of yeses, right? We didn't get like, oh, wow, everybody's going to call their legislator, but we started somewhere. The conversation was had about, yes, you know, burning down a building is not going to bring a person back. And, you know, there are already laws protecting people's property, like for getting people to see that this is an attack on the movement, right? Um, you know, and I think that felt really productive, that felt good. And it was a little teeny tiny step that we need to, um, you know, we need to just do better by our communities. And, you know, I think for a long time, myself included within the Latinx advocacy space, I was trained or just um, under the illusion that I felt like a horse. Like I was like, immigration, immigration. If it's not immigration, I'm not looking. But then you start realizing that everything is so connected and we can't live in our bubble with immigration only when a lot of these things are impacting all of our community members. I think that was like a huge lesson um, that I learned this year. And that's something that we, El Pueblo, is going to be really, really intentional about um, how we are really uh, challenging ourselves to build solidarity and to change our way of thinking so that someday um, things look different in North Carolina. I'm super glad you brought that up because we ask this question of all of our guests, like what is your personal theory of change? And I love you bringing up this true solidarity piece because um, I have heard from other Latinx movement makers in different spaces about how difficult it is to deal with the anti-Blackness and um, that true solidarity means putting in all that extra effort to see how um, with Latinx and Black populations, your liberations are linked. You don't have to fight for it. You get it together. And um, for listeners who don't remember, HB 805 was the anti-Black Lives Matter uh, bill that was all about anti-protest and anti-free speech. And we worked on that together. And I didn't know that y'all did phone banking on that. And I love that y'all did phone banking on it. That is amazing to spend the effort because if listeners, I'm sure some of you have done phone banking, you know, it's hard, you know, nobody loves it. And, you know, cause like it, those are hard conversations, but thinking about doing this topic, like that is amazing. I'm so glad y'all did it. And I know that, like you said, you know, you probably didn't get a ton of yeses, but 
the fact that you are having those difficult conversations that y'all made the effort. And then it sounds like at least people stayed on the line to like go through all those points to like ask questions, you know, saying like, well, what about property? As opposed to being like, nope, not into it, hang up. Like, but what about property? And y'all have the opportunity to say, that's not what this is about. And I didn't know y'all did that. That is so great. I'm so glad because I'm sure that that, I, I hope that all of the, all of your phone bankers felt good about it at the end of the day when y'all like debriefed. They felt good. And then I think the other strategy that we're trying to use is, um, you know, use pop culture to have these difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, there's other topics that, you know, I'm thinking through, um, like I, I can speak for like my adult leadership group, right. And like older Latinx ladies, they watch telenovelas, right? Soap operas, like it's a thing. They're always watching them. So how do we use something that they're already like super excited about? They're watching. How do we use those things to talk about colorism, to talk about, I mean, you know, there are novelas that are like super anti-Black. So I think that figuring out a way to dissect what they're already exposed to. So then that way it's not pointing fingers like, well, you're anti-Black because you said it up, but how can we you know, essentially protect ourselves a little bit and show, um, you know, like from the outside, like looking in, what do you think about that? What, what the, you know, so I think that there's a lot of opportunities that we're trying to, you know, think through and figure out because um, it's going to be a long, long process, a long, long journey right now. The, you know, and I guess with my, like the young people are the ones that are like, y'all, like I go to Thanksgiving and my grandma or my aunt is like, oh, you know, we moved into this neighborhood and there's a lot of black people and they're like, I, it triggers me. I don't know what to say. So, you know, A, I feel really excited that they come to us with these issues. They're like, you know, well, great. You know, like what you're feeling is real. Don't, you know, hide it under the rug. Let's figure out what are some things that you can say to at least like start having those conversations. And then we're gonna, you know, think through real ways that we can, um, you know, yeah, just start having them, um, you know, in broader spaces and how are we gonna, um, yeah, lead that way because right now, like I said, I even, yeah, I feel some type of way when we're like, oh, solidarity, solidarity, but like really, what does it look like? Like, how are you actively moving in that direction? And, um, you know, how are you holding yourself accountable um, as you move in that way? Yeah. I love that we're talking about this because I I agree. I think there there are a lot of important conversations that need to be had. And kind of going back to what you were saying in the beginning, Ileana, you know, you kind of, I feel like a lot of people kind of come into this work and we're like, we have the blinders on, like you said, thinking about immigration. And then, like you said, we see that everything is connected. And that kind of leads us to our next question that we wanted to ask you if, you know, is there any other specific issues or, you know, um, stereotypes or just conversations that need to be had regarding the Latinx community that you want to bring attention to now because there are so many and all of I think a lot of our guests would agree because I think we've said this with a few people you know you can't just label an entire community that's so vast and diverse with just one issue where nobody is a single issue community and I feel like a lot of people kind of typically place that on the Latinx and Hispanic uh, population. And so, yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts on if there's anything else that you want to bring attention to. I think a couple of issues that, um, you know, come to mind that are like really um, leading the work that we're doing as an organization is reproductive justice, reproductive rights, right? So I think that, you know, I myself had an abortion years ago and I shared it for the very first time at the rally. I don't even know when it was, right? But for me, um, it was just, you know, yeah, it was hard, right? Because it was the first time I shared it. And I was like, y'all, like, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. After this, I got 
sick. Like I was just like, whoa, like something tough. And I thought I was exhausted. And I was like, wait a minute. Yes, you're exhausted, but you just relived your whole trauma. And I questioned myself. I was like, was it even important? Like, who was my audience, right? Like, were my people even there? Like, is this, was I the token Latino? Let's, let's just have a brown person share their story, right? So those are like challenges and real things that I think through. But then also I'm like, it's time that we say that, right? It's time that like people are like, wow, you know, like this person had it and it's like, you know, like it's not that bad and it's not that big of a deal. And I think that because a lot of, you know, Latinx, older people like grew up Catholic, right? Like I kind of, you know, my grandmother was really Catholic or whatever. Um, and one of the most meaningful conversations I've had about abortion was with an older person from one of our programs who was Catholic. And, you know, when she, when I shared my abortion story with her and it was just one-on-one, -on -one, she was like, but you repent, right? And I was like, no, I don't repent. It was the right choice for me and I did it. And no, I, you know, me and God are homies. I believe in higher powers. Like I, you know, I'm still alive. I haven't been punished. Like, no, I, it was the right choice. And I have a happy, healthy 17 year old and you know, it wasn't bad. And Jen, she was like, okay, well, that's interesting. But if you were like, how to do it again, would you have done it? And I was like, yeah, I have. And it was just like the look on her face and the way that she like, was like, wow, this really like, it blew her mind that like a person with my background, with my age would openly share that experience. And that was what I was trying to accomplish. I was like, let me just come out and, and say it. And you know, the, the great thing was that my daughter was so proud. And I was like, oh my God, I hope like, she's not like, mom, like, why are you sharing these stories? But she was like, that's my mom. Like, she's like, I'm so proud of you and blah, blah, blah. And um, the look of like all the black and brown people who were there, like, it was just like, wow. You know, I think for a lot of them, maybe it was the first time that they, they heard that. And, you know, I think it's time that we are more intentional about having these conversations. And yes, of course, a lot of the community members that we work with, you know, for many other reasons, not just religion might be opposed to it, but I think that humanizing it and not seeing, you know, a random person from another state doing it. But when it's like, it's this person that I know and I love and they did this. I think it changes the narrative and we wanna figure out how to um, talk about that, right? So that's where the novel idea came up. Um, there's this soap opera called Jenny Rivera. A lot of people love Jenny Rivera. And it's like, oh my God, it's like 117 hours because it's like really long, but it, there, it has a moment there where like the main character thinks about it and her family's like, no, 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 you shouldn't do it. So. I know some of the program participants are already watching that story. So pointing that, you know, like we are, we all watched Jenny Rivera. What would have happened if, he, if she would have, you know, thought about a different route? Like, you know, so just being able to, you know, I think in a lot of programs that I've seen, we talk about abortion is like, you know, kind of like a class, right? You talk about it for a month and it's like, great, but the needle didn't move. You have isolated conversations thinking that at some point things are going to change and we need to you know, really be intentional and have people feel comfortable and confident with sharing their stories and us being able to look at that, you know, in soap operas or whatever other media we have. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is mental health. Um, you know, I grew up in a household where if you went to therapy, you were crazy or like meds, why are you taking meds? Like maybe you're bored, <laughs> go get a job, you'll stop being depressed type thing, right? And I think that the taboo and the the really, you know, the pandemic, it, it really was like, you know, challenging for a lot of people. So I think that with El Pueblo, we're trying to figure out how do we 
start having these conversations with adults, with young people who might need therapy or who have all kinds of unresolved trauma. And how do we build a space where they feel comfortable sharing? They have resources. Um, you know, sometimes therapy without insurance is like $120. That's crazy. So how are we gonna, um, you know, yeah, take care of each other, figure out how to move in the in a different direction and have the resources that we need um you know we saw what happened in texas right so i think that there's a lot to untangle and a lot to a lot of work to do in the years coming in terms of those two additional issues yeah i really i really appreciate everything you just shared and i truly think everything that you're doing is such meaningful work because like we said we knew that a lot of the tactics that we were doing in the past and are still doing some were not working as well as we thought they were and like starting these conversations like you said normalizing these issues in our community and like just having these conversations starting the conversations for children who may not feel comfortable in their house having that conversation themselves makes so much of a difference like that does move the needle we talk about all the things that we see that we don't always feel like we see the changes from and i truly think doing this work and having these conversations with people and working to normalize these issues make them more accessible to people and our community is so important so yeah just thank you thank you for bringing attention to that issue and for all you're doing to bring attention to all of the issues that the latinx community is facing yeah i appreciate you also using the word humanizing because it's like we know that we know in our brains that it happens to people but the storytelling of it and someone listening to you and hearing what your experience was um, does the act of humanizing because they had to feel what you're feeling while you share it with them. And, you know, we, we do this podcast because we know that storytelling is the way for people to truly understand something that they've never gone through themselves. And so I just, yeah, I'm just glad that you, that humanizing is something else to like take in with this because we're, we're all people we all have a lot of feelings. <laughs> and even if you've never experienced something yourself, um, you can share that with someone and learn something from it and hopefully move forward differently. And, um, yeah, I'd be I'd be curious to I'm sure that that volunteer that you were talking about, that older volunteer who you shared your story with one on one. I am sure that the next time she had a conversation with someone about it, had something different to say that time or, you know, like that's just the domino effect of that is really hopeful for me. So moving on to the latter half of this conversation for some more fun stuff. So um, in celebration of Latinx and Hispanic culture, we've been asking our uh, guests what your favorite part of your culture is that you like to celebrate um, and just for some people to hear about that. Yeah, so um, I think, yeah, I, I love, I, I love being Mexican. <laughs> like I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I'm super proud of my culture, my heritage, my background. Um, yeah, I just, it, it, it's a huge part of me. Um, and something that I've been, um, you know, I guess I'm, as I'm aging, so like I'm 38, I'm gonna be 39 next year. And I'm like, wow, you know, like a lot of the traditions that, you know, are so embedded in our culture, I feel like sometimes they get lost, right? It's like, oh, you know, like the grandmother used to meet this, now that she's not around, we're not doing it. But um, something that collectively I've been doing with a lot of the grassroots groups um, here in Raleigh, North Carolina is bringing 
those traditions back. So this past um, November, we had our Day of the Dead event. And I don't dance, y'all. I'm a terrible dancer, but I did my little dance. But it was because I was wearing this like costume, so nobody there was me. But um, just bringing back the richness of our culture, right? So it's like Day of the Dead is not like skeletons and stuff. Like there's so much story behind it, and you know to see like young people uh, being like, wow, like I'm so proud of this. Like this is my heritage. And see, like like little kids being like. It's more than Coco, the movie. Like, this is a whole thing that's like real life and people do this, right? So that to me was like super, super meaningful. I was so happy and excited. Um, and it just brought back like, you know, a lot, like tying it into, um, you know, what's happening. Like I was telling you, like some of my uh, dearest community members lost family in Mexico. And it's like, the person can't go. And it's like really, really hard. So how do we build like this rich traditional thing that are good for our hearts. Like I felt great, like even, you know, like my uh, padrino and my uncle passed away due to COVID last year and me having a picture of them on the altar was so beautiful and meaningful and rich. And I was just so happy and full of love that I could do that and share that with people. Um, you know, we had a very diverse crowd and they were like, wow, like y'all have pictures of people and like, you know, the story and the different layers of the other, like I myself had to learn from it because I was like, oh, bet we'll just put a table and like put the stuff on it. And one of the ladies, Maria, she was like, no, you need the levels of the altar and you need this and that. And I was like, wow, like I, I myself learned so much and I was so excited about it. This coming up, um, December the 19th, we're gonna have posadas. And I remember posadas back in the day when I was like, you know, seven or eight and we sang and we broke the piñata, but I have never done that again since I moved here. And because of the day of the event was so amazing, a lot of the grassroots were like, wow, this was great. Can we do it again? Let's do a posada. And I was like, bet. So say no more. We're doing posadas. And, you know, just thinking through like the way that we sang, the acting that happened, the piñatas, um, it's just so beautiful. And it just like, I feel like in such a great privileged position to be able to like, um, yeah, like to be the idioma pueblo and be like, we're doing this. And it doesn't have to have any type of gain, um, you know, it doesn't have to be for redistricting purposes. We are gonna do some, you know, interesting things for our posada to highlight the separation of families, but we are doing, uh, you know, the initial intention and with our day of the dead, we weren't trying to, you know, base build or register 50 voters or whatever. It was just, we're gonna just share our culture, like do what we wanna do, have this moment of joy because we deserve it and because it's great and because we wanna do it. Um, so to be able to guide El Pueblo in that direction just feels really, really great. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, but what's, what are the goals? The goals are to have fun. The goals are to like relive that experience as a child, breaking the piñatas. Like that's the goal that like, we shouldn't have this, you know, hidden agenda of like, we're going to talk to 40 people. Our base is going to grow by 20. Like, who cares? Let's just have this because we want to have it. So I think that, you know, I, I don't know if it's because of aging or whatever, but like, the proudest thing of like my heritage, my tradition is being able to live that fully and share it with other people just because it's fun and it makes us happy. Absolutely. I love that. Something that Taylor always reminds us and our guests on this podcast is that we do a lot of hard work and we need time for joy. So it's really important to, to always cultivate those moments of joy for ourselves and our communities. And I just love that, you know, bringing back traditions and culture and things that remind you of home is always what brings people the most together. So thank you so much for sharing that. 
And I also wanted to ask you, you know, this kind of leads into our next question, because the reason that we bring these rich traditions wherever we are is because it does remind us of home. And because in a way where we are never really will be home exactly. And so, you know, I just want to ask you what it means to you to be Latinx in North Carolina, so far away from Mexico and your culture. Yeah, I think I'm at a point where, like, you know, I started saying y'all, like, I don't even know when, <laughs> so I'm like, is North Carolina my home? I do hope to, like, retire and go to Mexico and was like, I was telling my dad, I'm like, you can really just put me in a nursing home. He's like, no, you are going to have a little house by the beach and somewhere in Mexico and you're going to plant your little plants because I used to, like, not plant things because they died. Now I'm a plant mom. She's like, you're going to live your best life. And I do want to go back home because it is home, right? And it really does feel great to be able to walk around and see people who look like you. And it just like, it is just a different thing. And I love feeling that way every time I have a chance to, you know, be back home. Um, and, you know, with North Carolina and Washington, right? So I love Washington State. My family's there. My high school friends are there. And for the longest time ever, I thought about moving back because, you know, the South is different. And my mom was like, you know, my mom would come visit me and she would go to the grocery store or something. And like, she can't pronounce yogurt properly. And they were like, what are you saying? Like your accent? And she was like, I speak English in Washington State and people say my accent is so cute. And I'm this cute old lady with a cute accent. And here is like, I he they hear my accent and they're dismissive. They ask me to repeat myself or they don't want to help me. She's like, why on earth? Are you in North Carolina and not in Washington State? The, and then she just comes up with a list of like the minimum wage is higher. Like, you know, other, like, yeah, there's just so much stuff going on there. And I'm like, mom, if I was in Washington State, I wouldn't, maybe I would be, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that need to improve in all parts of the world, right? I'm like, but maybe my advocacy and activism wouldn't be like as meaningful, at least to myself, right? Like this is, North Carolina was where I started my teaching journey. Um, before even moving here and having my own daughter, I was like, ew, I don't know if I want to have kids. But then after I was like, wow, you know, so like this is where like I kind of like figured out my own pathway. And, um, you know, like I feel like I'm grounded here. I love the weather in North Carolina. My mom's like, ew, it's so hot. Like I sweat all the time. Like this is horrible. Like, no. And I'm like, I would much rather have a hundred degree weather and I'm sweating profusely than being in the rain 90% of the year. Like there's no way. So I think that being in the South has definitely shaped who I am today. It has definitely, um, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for everything the South has given me. And when people trash talk the South, I'm like, yeah, you know, we have a lot to grow. We have a lot to do. And it needs to, we can't just move out because things are not working out, right? That means we have to stay. We have to work on ourselves. We have to work with our community to make things better. Um, and yeah, I love, even though with all the challenges um, and the perception of like, oh, Southern, da, 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 I, I still love the South. I still, you know, I, if I end up staying in the United States for, you know, my retirement, I would stay in North Carolina, I think. I, don't, I have no desire to move anywhere else except for maybe Mexico um, at some point. I'm cracking up because I do the same thing. Like I will, I will fight someone about the South, like no problem, because <laughs> I just feel like people who hate on it um, don't get it. Um, and it's like, <laughs> Alyssa's laughing at me. <laughs> you don't get it unless you've lived here. Like, you know, they just don't get it. They just don't. <laughs> Cause it's like, yes, we own our shit. 
sure. Like we got, we have some bad stuff going on, but we're also willing to fix it. Like we are willing to put in the work um, as opposed to some other places that are like, we don't even have problems. And I'm like, honey, everybody has problems. (laughs) Bars are just really in your face. (laughs) So, but that's, that's really great to hear. And I do think that in, in this series, we have heard that a lot, right? Like, I think that most of our guests have said, yes, they would love to go back, um, to their home country, either like when they can, when it's safe for them, um, or maybe later in life, but they are also, you know, really glad that North Carolina has become their new home and, you know, they are happy here. Even yeah. <laughs> It makes me think also of something one of our guests, Omi told us, and they would always tell us like a really important part of you know, doing the work we do is like finding a home, finding our political home and like knowing where that is and knowing where you can go back to and those people. And I think it's great that you found that here in North Carolina and the South appreciates you just as much and all of the contributions that you've given to us. So most definitely. Well, uh, is there anything else you'd want our listeners to know, Leon, anything we haven't covered a last pearl of wisdom to share with everybody? Yes. Any parting words to leave with the listeners? (laughs) Um, No, just that, um, like, super grateful to y'all. This has been a really fun space. Um, I don't think I've ever done a podcast, so this is my first one. And I'm excited. And yeah, to all the listeners, um, yes, you know, if if people want to get connected with El Pueblo, you know, we're out there in the socials. Uh, We're going to have our posada on December the 19th. So if people want to come, hang out, eat tamales, uh, just have fun, you know, do it. And yeah, um, you know, just very grateful for the space. And I think this project is amazing. So thank you both for uh, doing this because yeah, it's work. You have to schedule and do the things and have the questions and the production. So super duper grateful to you both for, for doing this and having this space for folks. And yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing all of the amazing words of wisdom that you did. We're so lucky to have you here in North Carolina and we're so grateful for all the work that you and everybody at El Pueblo does. So yes, listeners go support El Pueblo, go look them up, go follow them, support them in whatever ways that you can. Thanks for joining us as we celebrate Latinx culture and continue to create a North Carolina that is built by us. And thanks for listening to this podcast made of, by, and for the people. Bye. Bye.